Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Carol Anderson. She is Charles Howard Candler Professor of African American Studies at Emory University and the author, among several books, of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Nation's Divide, which was a New York Times bestseller and a Washington Post notable book of 2016, and One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, which was long listed for the National Book Award and a finalist for the Penn Galbraith Award for Nonfiction. And uh, Professor Anderson will be featured at the Voting Rights Symposium at Utah State University. Dr. Anderson will be speaking with Dr. Maricela Martinez-Cola of USU about access to voting in the United States throughout its history and in 2020. That event is September 17th, 5 p.m. And to register for this webinar, you can go to history.usu.edu slash voting rights symposium. Dr. Anderson, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so uh, it's interesting you you connect uh, you know connect these two books right uh, white rage with the with one person uh, no vote um, white rage I think was written in the aftermath of the uh, Ferguson um, and uh, first of all tell us what uh, what what white rage is yes and it isn't what it sounds like. So normally when we hear the word rage, we think of the fury. We think of the tiki torch-bearing folks hollering in Charlottesville, or we think of a Klan cross-burning. What I look at is what I call that subtle, corrosive, bureaucratic violence of rage. And that's the when African Americans um, have a major advance toward their citizenship right. We see a, a slew of policies and Supreme Court decisions that come um, subtly to undermine and, and undercut that advancement. And so I take it from the Civil War, where African Americans move from being property to actually being citizens and the move that leads us to black codes and then to a series of Supreme Court decisions that undermine um, the 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law, birthright citizenship, and the 15th Amendment, the right to vote. Um, and so I look at these through a series of, of of these key moments in American history and look at the policies that then just strip and undercut that that advancement. Yeah, you say uh, white rage um, goes unnoticed um, because it's not in the streets, carries an hour of respectability because it has access to courts, police, legislatures, governors, etc., etc. Um, I, I assume you would apply this uh, currently, uh, George Floyd, uh, Jacob Blake, etc. I mean, so what we see, and so you even hear the language in terms of legality and illegality um, in what we're we're living through right now. Um, But it is is how we understand how change is made um, and how we cast protest against um, systemic violence uh, against African Americans how we cast that as being um, within the boundaries of, of society, but, but cast the, the protest against it um, as being 
illegal. And I look at, for instance, so one of the things you hear is about, um, well, you know, the, these protests are violent. Actually, 93% of them were not. And some of them that were violent, it wasn't the the actual protesters that were committing the violence. But it's like looking at Martin Luther King saying, if you only did it the way Martin Luther King did it, which is such a misreading of that history, uh, because he was vilified for nonviolent protest. And so it's not the type of protest. It is actually the protest itself. Um, and and where the the where I came with the linkage between the white rage of of the Obama years when uh, President Barack Obama was elected and one person no vote is that one of the the powerful indicators of that has been the slew of laws that have led to voter suppression in the United States. Mm. I want to go back and uh, uh, talk about some of this history. It's it's interesting, and I, I think I think maybe uh, you know some people forget this history, right? That's uh, uh, maybe one reason why you wrote the book. I noticed you have a YA version of, of the book as well. Um, one person, no vote. Um, Absolutely, yes. Uh, but but before we do that, uh, I want to. Um, I want to talk about what you see, perhaps what we all see coming. Uh, we, we can see it very clearly coming in in 2020, um, because you know, President Trump and others are are you know saying the quiet part out loud uh, these days. Um, it's uh, you wrote in in November of uh, 2019, so uh, back you know almost a year ago. In the Guardian, the five ways Republicans will crack down on voting rights in 2020. You 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 made some predictions here. Um, so one of these is intimidation of minority voters. Um, uh, cur- well, I'll just read them: uh, intimidation of, cur- of, of uh, minority voters, curbing voter registration, felon disenfranchisement, election security issues, uh, and partisan courthouses. Do you uh, you stand by these predictions from November of 2019? Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, I'm really looking like a swami right now <laughs> when I see this. I um, mean, so think about it this way. In intimidation of voters, um, we have had the, um, the after the RNC, the Republican National Committee, um, after its consent decree was no longer re-upped after 30 years, um, you heard this push to create what they call poll watchers, to go in basically to the cities uh, to ensure that the election wasn't being stolen. Now, the reason why that consent decree had been there in the first place had been the harassment and intimidation of minority voters and their precincts, um, challenging them um, as they're standing in line to vote. And and so we're seeing a process, a, a policy emerging in 2020 to re-up that again, as, they, as I think it was Trump who was calling for 50,000 people to come and, and protect the polls. That's intimidation, and we know it. Um, you know, as we, we, we see the, the difficulties in voter registration, particularly during a pandemic, um, we, we see um, Florida 
after you have a ballot initiative that says um, that you cannot have permanent felony disfranchisement. People have served their time. They have paid their debt to society. 64% of uh, the Floridians who voted voted for that ballot initiative because in Florida, 1.7 million Floridians were denied the right to vote because of permanent felony disfranchisement. 1.7 million. Um, this ballot initiative put 1.4 million of them back into the eligible category to register to vote. And so the state legislature came back with like, oh, my God, we got to stop this. And so they came up with essentially a poll tax um, saying you've got to pay all of your court fines and fees and everything else before you can vote. But we don't ask people to prove you have paid your property tax or prove that you have paid your income taxes before you can vote. This is a poll tax, and it is a way to block over one million people from voting. Um, and so, yes, I, I stand by it. And we see the, the stuffing of the courts um, in the midst of a pandemic where the Senate has has made that the priority of having judges who don't believe in voting rights, who don't believe in civil rights. Hmm. Uh, just Bert, lately, and I'm reading uh, an... Headline from CNN, um, this is from Wednesday, Georgia likely removed nearly 200,000 people from voter rolls wrongfully, according to a new report. Yes, yes. And, you know, and I'm in Georgia. Yeah. (laughs) And the, the level of voter suppression is so intense and it is so blatant here. Um, And it it is a never-ending struggle. And so even, for instance, again, we're in the midst of a pandemic, and Georgia is like number five in the nation in terms of the, the virulence and the wide, how widespread COVID-19 is. And so our primary got moved from um, April to June. In that move, because of the pandemic, the Secretary of State said, okay, I'm going to send out an absentee ballot um, application to every active voter. Our Speaker of the House was outraged, and he said, that's absurd. If you send every registered voter an absentee ballot, it means they're going to vote, and we're going to have high turnout. Now, think about how nonsensical and malevolent that is. If every voter votes, we're in trouble. That, that, that's where we are. It, and so we see this with the purges as well. The purges have been um, just wrong. And so the way that the law works, is that the National Voter Registration Act, uh, the motor voter law, uh, says that you can um, remove someone from the polls if they have moved out of the district. So not if they move within the same voting district, but if they move out of the district or they move out of the state. That's logical. It says also you can remove someone if they've died. 
that's logical. But it says you cannot remove someone simply because they haven't voted. You don't lose your right to vote simply because you haven't voted. In Georgia, however, that has not been the case. And so you're getting this mass removal. Think about this. 200,000 Georgians wrongly removed from the voting rolls in this decade, in, in, well, in, in between 2010 and, and 2019. 200,000. Elections have been won and lost by that margin. Mm. That's when I talk about voter suppression imperils our democracy. What do you think of, uh, let me put this in context, what do you think of uh, President Trump's concerted um, campaign against uh, vote by mail? And he he came right out and said it. He he, he said, I I don't want vote by mail because it's going to favor the Democrats. Right, he said it out loud, didn't he? Um, And what we know with vote by mail is you get more civic engagement. What we know with vote by mail is that you don't have this kind of mass rampant fraud that he claims. Um, We have five states, including Utah, that overwhelmingly do vote by mail and do not have any of the problems that he's conjuring up. And so, again, you have to ask yourself, why is it that people voting legally become so threatening to Donald Trump. Mm. And when you ask, 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 answer that question, it becomes so clear, again, how democracy is imperiled by systematically trying to shut off access to the ballot box to American citizens, because that is what voter suppression is. At its base, it is shutting down American citizens' access to the ballot box. What we see is fundamental to American democracy. Um, And so the kneecapping of the post office is part and parcel of Trump's strategy to try to make vote by mail in the midst of a pandemic absolutely uh, virtually impossible are so difficult that people will be dissuaded from doing so. Hmm. And you do see some Republicans pushing back, <laughs> saying yeah. that, hey, we're, you're, you're, yeah. you're going to disenfranchise our voters. You're going to disenfranchise Republicans if you keep up with this. Right. And, and you know, and, and Senator Mitt Romney was like, basically, what are you saying? We do this in Utah and we don't have a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get this kind of twofold thing. And so Part of what is happening, and I've seen the, the, the things, is that while you get this, this, this national narrative emanating out of the White House about how vote by mail is awful, it's going to destroy democracy, what? Um, you also have then the local um, Republicans urging their voters to vote by mail in a pandemic because that is a way to maintain your right to vote and also maintain your safety in the midst of a pandemic. Mm. So it's 
And so what we really need to have is a commitment to democracy, is a commitment to honor the right to vote for all American citizens. That's where we need to be. Well, again, to talk about that, we'll take a break here soon and come back, get some historical context. Uh, I think that's important to, to review. Yes. Um, so so I, I want to get your reaction to some comments from uh, our uh, lieutenant governor, uh, Lieutenant Governor Cox, uh, here in Utah. Uh, there's a, a, I can't remember, national outlet. Uh, I guess they, uh, I think they w- went looking for a Republican uh, who has administered a vote by mail. And, of course, Utah has a long history of doing this, very successful history. Um, mm-hmm. And so they talked to Lieutenant Governor Cox uh, and and asked him about this. You know, any concerns about vote by mail? He said, no concerns at all if you have it in place and you've worked out the kinks, right, like in Utah. He said he has some concerns if you're trying to ramp up and you've never done, uh, you know, vote by mail to this extent uh, in some of these states. He said there are some things to be worked out. Uh, do you have any concerns? And, and my concerns are that the states is that we have had such pressure put on the states and that we haven't received the kind of funding to fully ramp up um, to do all of the training, um, to give the time for, so for instance, like in Wisconsin, during its primary, it received something on, on to the effect of like 10 times more requests than they had received before for absentee ballots because of the pandemic. And the Supreme Court ruled on April 6th that the ballots had to be postmarked by April 7th in order to count. Well, tens of thousands of those ballots hadn't even been received yet. (laughs) And so it's requiring voters who haven't received the ballot to then make the choice. And so we need some flexibility in there to recognize we are in the midst of a pandemic and that we do need the funds for um, to, to fully staff up our, our, our boards of elections so that they can adequately and effectively run um, a campaign where mail-in ballots are going to be um, an essential component of what promises to be a massive voter turnout for the 2020 election. That Wisconsin election, uh, I guess, can be seen as a hopeful sign, perhaps. Do you, do you see it that way? There were quotes from voters afterwards saying that there was a backlash, it appeared. And then some voters said, okay, you've taken away my vote by mail. I'm going to take my health in my hands, go and stand in line, and I'm going to vote in person. Right. I mean, we have seen this throughout. I mean, I looked at Wisconsin. Um, I, in Georgia, we had a record-breaking turnout in the midst of a pandemic, people standing in line for five hours in several Atlanta precincts. Um, we saw massive voter turnout in Virginia, in South Carolina. People, and, and, and we saw people banging on the doors in Louisville, Kentucky, let me in so I can vote. People are willing to fight for this democracy. They are willing to fight to vote. As I've heard people say, I will crawl through broken glass to vote in November. That's who we are. 
And and when we have a system that is trying to deny that right to vote, Americans push back, push back hard. Because we recognize how valuable, how important, how essential this democracy is. And so to try to 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 shut down access to the ballot box, uh-uh. And so that kind of rise up that we saw in Wisconsin, oh, yes. And voter registrations, even in the midst of this pandemic, are, are, are rising, are increasing. And we're particularly seeing that increase in, in young folk. So, I mean, it's, it, there are these incredibly hopeful signs, which is why I believe while we're seeing this kind of double down on voter suppression. Mm. You, you feel like this is uh, those who want to uh, suppress the vote are, are worried they're doubling down. Oh, mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, think about it this way. Um, you know, we've had in Georgia over 200 polling places closed since the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. 200. 75 percent of those have been in minority and poor communities. And so when you shut down the polling places, it limits access to the ballot box. In the midst of a pandemic, though, what became to the fore was the possibility, the real possibility of voting by mail. And when that possibility started becoming a reality, um, started seeping into the consciousness of those who are massive vote suppressors, then it was like, wow, how do we shut this down now? How do we shut down this route? to the ballot box. And this is where you get um, Trump saying, I'm, I'm withholding funds from the post office, so that way they can't do all of this mail-in balloting, <laughs> process all of these mail-in ballots. I was like, wow, he said that out loud. Um, you get DeJoy, who um, Trump put in place as the postmaster general, um, ordering, you know, when you begin to look at where the sorting machines have been removed, over 670 sorting machines, they're from these kind of big cities that that have a, a racially diverse population and where there's the fear that they're Demo- what they call Democrat cities, <laughs> Democratic cities, where, in fact, you, they're, they're American cities. This is what keeps getting lost in this voter suppression piece. Um, and, and so when you see that tactic about how do we shut down as many access points to the ballot box, so we're shutting down access to the ballot box for American citizens. Let's take a break, uh, and uh, when we come back, I want to get into some of the historical uh, context. So we're talking with uh, Carol Anderson, who's the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African American Studies at Emory University, author of, among other books, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Nation's Divide, which is the New York Times bestseller, and One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, which was long listed for the National Book Award. Carol Anderson will be featured at the Voting Rights Symposium, which will be coming up at uh, Utah State University. It will be a series of uh, online events, 
And uh, Dr. Anderson will be speaking with Dr. Maricela Martinez-Cola of USU about access to voting in the United States throughout its history and in 2020. That event is on September 17th at 5 p.m., September 17th, 5 p.m., and you can register for this webinar by going to history.usu.edu slash voting rights symposium, history.usu.edu slash voting rights symposium. We'll have more following this break. Utah Public Radio and Bridgerland Audubon Society's Grow Native for Birds Bookmark Art Contest is made possible in part by Utah Native Plant Society. Dedicated to the appreciation, preservation, conservation, and responsible use of native plants and plant communities found in Utah and the Intermountain West. Information at unps.org. Submit entries now through October 13th. Details at upr.org. Support also comes from S.E. Needham Jewelers, offering custom jewelry consultations with on-premise designers and goldsmiths. Open 10 to 7, Monday to Saturday. Located in the middle of the block at the sign of the clock. Information at seneedham.com. On the next Living on Earth, studies find that eating more organic foods appears to reduce the risk for developing cancer. A cleaner set of ingredients, closer to nature, fewer additives, less processing is probably in general playing a role here. I'm Steve Kerwood. Organic food in your health, next time on Living on Earth from PRX. Tomorrow morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest uh, for the hour today is Professor Carol Anderson. Uh, she is Charles Howard Candler, Professor of African American Studies at Emory University, the author, among other books, of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Nation's Divide, which is a New York Times bestseller, and One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, which is long listed for the National Book Award, a finalist for the Penn Galbraith Award in nonfiction. And uh, Dr. Anderson will be speaking at the Voting Rights Symposium at Utah State University. They'll be doing this uh, virtually because of the uh, pandemic and a series of events. Uh, this event with Dr. Anderson uh, speaking with Dr. Maricela Martinez-Cola of USU is on September 17th at 5 p.m. September 17th, 5 p.m. You can register for this webinar uh, by going to history.usu.edu slash voting rights symposium. History.usu.edu slash voting Dash rights dash symposium. So, Dr. Anderson, um, I want to get into some of the history here, some of the context, and uh, mm. you know, some uh, listening today will will probably know most of this, right? And some will not, maybe know any of it. Um, I wonder, uh, do you have a concern that 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 perhaps we have to educate every new generation, right? Uh, is that why you did a YA version of your of your of your vote of your book? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, history, history is so important for helping us understand how we got here, uh, the choices that we've made, the choices that we didn't make, um, and and often. And I'm a historian, right? So and and so I see students coming into my class, and as I'm like going through like Reconstruction, the rise of Jim Crow, some of it feels so new to them that it was clear to me that it was important to do a YA version as well as the adult version so that we have a sense of of what has happened um, and what didn't happen and why. 
Because when we have that foundation, then we're really able to have a true, robust conversation. Mm. Yeah, it, it struck me, uh, the, you know, the last few months, uh, the death of John Lewis and, and the focus mm-hmm. on, on him and, and some other civil rights leaders. Um, you know, the march, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, uh, that front and center was voting rights, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and John Lewis was my congressman, so I just feel that loss so deeply. Um, at in Selma, and so let me kind of Selma was the in Dallas County only point nine percent of African Americans were registered to vote in Dallas County, where Selma was. And it wasn't for lack of trying. They would line up at the courthouse to to register to vote. Um, the courthouse, I believe, was only open a couple of days a month. Um, and the clerks would come in late and leave early and take a long lunch. <laughs> so it was designed to impede access to voter registration. And they had been organizing and mobilizing for years. And there had been a, a nighttime march in a, in a, um, in a, a adjacent county, and there had been a killing of Jimmy Lee Jackson, who was protecting his mother from a beating during this, this, this march. And so they were going to symbolically carry Jimmy Lee Jackson's casket from Selma to Montgomery and put it on the doorstep of Governor George Wallace. And that was the march that we saw on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, uh, a nonviolent march about voting rights, where you have a county where you got 0.9% of, of African Americans and over 60% of whites are registered to vote in Dallas County. Although their their population numbers for voting eligible age eligible um, voters is about the same between African Americans and whites, and that's what this was. And so you see the Alabama State Patrol lined up, and you see Sheriff Jim Clark and his posse on horseback with bullwhips lined up, and and they are they descend upon the nonviolent protesters. Uh, Bull whips, horses trampling over people, billy clubs and whips just 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 destroying the lives of people who want to vote. And the cameras were rolling. And the the that moment was called Bloody Sunday. And we had three three major networks in uh, back in the day, ABC, CBS and NBC. And ABC cut into its movie of the week, Judgment at Nuremberg, to show the footage of Bloody Sunday. And that so traumatized the nation, going, wait a minute, these are people who just want to vote? This is America. This isn't what we do. This isn't who we are. And that led eventually to the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was there to undo all of the damage of the Mississippi Plan of 1890. When you, when you talk about talking about yeah, the history. Uh, yeah, uh, let's talk about that, uh, because, uh, of course, we had the, the 15th Amendment, 
uh, which mm-hmm. which ensured the rights we thought of everyone to vote, right? The, the, targeted to the newly freed slaves, um, mm-hmm. but um, the, the, you know these these white majority governments uh, found a way to get around that, right? Yes, they did. And so it was in 1890 in Mississippi. Mississippi was concerned um, because the U.S. was in the middle of a massive economic downturn. And poor whites and poor blacks were beginning to organize together. (laughs) It was like, whoa, wait a minute. We have done our best to split these folks to make them think that they have nothing in common. What is this organizing together thing? And so the Mississippi State Legislature came up with a plan. It was called the Mississippi Plan of 1890. And they realized that they were dealing with the 15th Amendment now that said, the state shall not abridge the right to vote on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And so the question was, how do you write a law saying we don't want black folks to vote without writing a law saying we don't want black folks to vote? Prior to the 15th Amendment, we saw a slew of these laws coming through in the United States, in the North and in, in, in the, you don't even have to think about it in the South because of slavery. But after the Civil War, after the 15th Amendment, how do we write a law saying we don't want black folks to vote? And Mississippi said, I got it. We're going to use the societally imposed condition on African Americans. We're going to use slavery's legacies and make those legacies access to the ballot box. And we're going to make it all sound legal, all sound legitimate. We're going to talk about trying to end corruption at the ballot box, trying to bring integrity back to the election system. We're going to talk about ending voter fraud. But what we're really doing is trying to stop every black person from voting. And so, and this is how we're going to do it. So one of the the tools in the Mississippi plan was the poll tax. And the poll tax said, well, you know, elections are expensive. (laughs) You got, you know, you got to have places where people are voting. You got to have people taking the votes. You got to have people counting the votes. And And so if you really believed in democracy, you would be willing to pay a small tax in order to ensure that this democracy runs efficiently. So you see right there, it flips the onus onto the citizen and not onto the state for ensuring free and fair elections. If you really believed, you would pay. But the second thing that it does is that it preys on the systemic poverty of the black community, born out of centuries of unpaid labor, followed by the black code, followed by sharecropping, so that the poll tax in Mississippi actually amounted to 2 to 6% of a Mississippi farm family's annual income. So while it might sound nominal, imagine paying 2 to 6% of your annual income to vote. And the poll tax was cumulative. So if it took you years to be able to come up with enough money to pay, you 
owe, and it took you 20 years, you owe 20 years of back poll taxes before you could vote. Poll tax was lethal. Lethal. As was the literacy test. The literacy test, again, sounds legitimate on its surface. We want to make sure that our, our, our electorate understands the value systems and the laws and the founding principles of this great nation. So we don't think it's too much to ask for them to read a section of the Constitution. Well, when you have killed the enslaved who dared learn how to read, <laughs> and you've done that over centuries, and then you systematically underfund black schools. I mean, we by the time we get to the 1940s, over 50% of black adults in Mississippi, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, and Louisiana had less than five years of Jim Crow education. But we turn to them and say, read a legal document as if you had a Harvard J.D. And so there were a series of these um, mechanisms in the Mississippi plan. And so it's like if the poll tax doesn't get them, the literacy test will. If the literacy test doesn't get them, then the understanding clause will. If the understanding clause doesn't get them, then the good character clause. If the good character clause doesn't get them, then the white primary, which South Carolina added in 1896. So you have all of these mechanisms. What it meant so the Supreme Court in 1898 ruled that the poll tax and the literacy test did not violate the 15th Amendment because everybody had to pay the poll tax and everybody had to read without recognizing the intent of the law, but also without recognizing the serious uh, structural foundations underneath those laws that made the poll tax so lethal, because that's what slavery did. That made the literacy test so lethal, because that's what slavery did. So that by the time we get to 1940 and the Second World War has begun, not officially for the U.S., but it's already happening, um, only 3% of age-eligible black adults were registered to vote in the South. Three percent in an in an area where ninety percent of all African Americans lived in the United States. Mm. This is how you can warp a democracy. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, to take it up to the Voting Rights Act of nineteen sixty-five, mm. uh, and then uh, I want to make sure we talk about the Shelby case uh, because that that uh, un, undid uh, some you know important provisions of the Voting Rights Act. And has uh, allowed you know state legislators uh, to uh, to to get back to some uh, some voter suppression. Uh, we're talking with uh, Carol Anderson, who is Charles Howard Candler Professor of African American Studies at Emory University, the author of White Rage: The Unspoken Truth of Our Nation's Divide and One Person No Vote: How Voter Suppression Is Destroying Our Democracy, among other uh, books. And she'll be featured at the Voting Rights Symposium at Utah State University. The event is September 17th, 5 p.m. And you can register for this webinar. It's be online because of COVID. Um, History.usu.edu slash Voting Rights Symposium. We'll have more following this. 
Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. And UPR's debunked podcast is supported by USU's Department of Kinesiology and Health Science, committed to educating and serving students and members of both local and extended communities in the fields of kinesiology and health science. Information at khs.usu.edu slash outreach. Okay, so imagine your life hangs in the balance. Who do you want passing judgment on you? An unelected white man in judicial robes, as opposed to 12 random jerks from the street. We're the conscience of the community. Our forefathers believe that the jury getting it wrong was better than the crown getting it wrong. To me, the first people to go have to be these GD jurors. Join us for the next Radio Lab, where we put our own judicial system on trial. Tuesday mornings at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment now with Professor Carol Anderson, who is uh, Charles Howard Candler, Professor of African American Studies at Emory University. Uh, she will be featured in the Voting Rights Symposium at Utah State University. This will be a series of events, um, virtual events, because of the pandemic. And uh, this event with uh, Dr. Anderson is September 17th at 5 p.m. You can register for this webinar by going to history.usu.edu slash voting rights symposium. Uh, so, Dr. Anderson, you mentioned before the break that because the, the, these the Jim Crow laws, uh, Black Code laws, were very effective um, suppressing the vote, only three percent of African Americans, uh, what up up to about 1965, were registered to vote. The Voting Rights Act did have a, a, a big effect, I believe. I, I, I was seeing a piece you did in the Washington Post. Uh, that that jumped uh, four years later, 1969, to uh, is in the high 50s, I think. Um, so uh, to put some context for the Voting Rights Act, 1965, I don't think this would have happened, right, without the Civil Rights Movement. This was the catalyst. And then the, the Voting oh, Rights Act was, was the result. Absolutely. Absolutely. Without the Civil Rights Movement, without the ongoing organizing happening um, by grassroots organizations um, without the strategy of the civil rights movement itself to to make visible the kind of physical violence and bureaucratic violence raining down on on African Americans because of Jim Crow Voting Rights Act would never have happened um, and the change that it made, uh, where we started seeing uh, massive increases in black voter registration um, in Mississippi alone, um, prior to the Voting Rights Act, only 5% or so of African Americans in Mississippi were registered to vote. And there were counties where there were zero, zero percentage. Um, after two years after uh, the Voting Rights Act, it was almost 60 percent. That's a game changer. That is a game changer. Um, and we, we, there were reauthorizations and pushbacks for the Voting Rights Act all the way through. But uh, I would say that um, 
the the 2013 Shelby County v. Holder decision by the U.S. Supreme Court uh, has done as much damage um, as the Plessy the Plessy decision in 1896 on separate but equal that that sanctified Jim Crow. What the Shelby County v. Holder decision said was that the Voting Rights Act is, you know, it's passe, it's calcified. Um, And we don't have the racism now in America that we had back then in the 60s. And, And so the real need for this law is really not clear. And it picks on the South. Um, so many of the states that were under the Voting Rights Act where you had to pre-clear, you had to get approval from the U.S. Department of Justice before you implemented uh, a, a voting law. Uh, that, that, that's just picking on the South. Um, and because the Voting Rights Act had a bailout provision, which said all you had to do is not discriminate for somewhere between five to ten years, and you no longer had to come under preclearance. But there were these states almost 50 years later that were still under uh, the preclearance provision. And so the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the preclearance provision within two hours after Shelby County v. Holder. Texas implemented a voter ID law that... Um, the federal court said not only had a racially discriminatory impact, it had a racially discriminatory intent. Two hours after Shelby County v. Holder. In Alabama, Alabama had written a law, a voter ID law in 2011 that was so racially discriminatory that it knew it could never get through a Department of Justice preclearance review. After um, Shelby County v. Holder, Alabama implemented its voter ID law. And in North Carolina, the federal court said, you have targeted African Americans with almost surgical precision in terms of its voter ID law, poll closures, uh, cutting back early voting hours, the whole nine yards. I mean, so this is this is what we see unleashed on our on our political terrain right now. Um, states trying to do a version of the Mississippi Plan of 1890. I call it Jim Crow 2.0. Um, where you take the euphemisms, you take the synonyms, you take the legacies, and you make those legacies the access to the ballot box. Mm. Uh, so I think we understand gerrymandering, you know, politicians seeking their voters, mm. uh, choose their voters rather than the reverse, right? Um, you, yeah. You've talked a little bit about poll closures. I wonder if you talk a little bit more about that. Uh, that, that has, uh, you, you said uh, 75% of the poll closures uh, in, was it Georgia or Atlanta, were targeted at minority Georgia. communities? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the way poll closures work, again, it is designed to sound reasonable. Um, Americans like reasonableness, right? And so it's designed designed to sound reasonable. We've got we've got uh, these fiscal constraints, and as being really good stewards of public dollars, we are closing some of these polls for poll consolidation. 
Well, what that does, though, is we know from the research that for every tenth of a mile that a polling place is moved from the black community, black voter turnout goes down by 0.5%, up to four miles. So you can, and it deals with access to transportation. Um, and so the you can move a polling place, say, five miles away, and you have basically created the conditions for a 20% drop in black voter turnout. In Georgia, um, in Sparta, for instance, they moved the polling place for the black community 17 miles away. Imagine trying to get seven during a work day, because Tuesday's generally a work day, going 17 miles to the polling place and dealing with maybe not having enough machines in there and the lines and everything, and then getting 17 miles back to get to work on time. This is how it works. It looks logical until you pull back the veneer and you see how it, it's operationalized um, in order to assault the voting rights of multiple sectors of the, of the American population. Mm. And that's what makes this thing so lethal. Uh, just have about three minutes left. I, w- I want to have you talk about the, the voter ID requirements. Uh, the, again, that <sighs> might sound reasonable if if you accept that there's voter widespread voter fraud, which is which <laughs> there is no consensus on that. It's, you know, but but if you accepted that, then voter ID would would seem reasonable. And and that's it, voter ID is designed to sound reasonable in the face of the the so-called threat of massive voter fraud, but there isn't massive voter fraud. Um, and so I, I want to take that first. Justin Levitt, law professor out of California, found that from 2000 to 2014, there were one billion votes cast. There were only 31 cases of voter impersonation fraud in those 15 years out of one billion. Um, and so but you get the, the aura of voter fraud. The, the threat. And so you get these voter ID laws, and it sounds reasonable, but it's not every ID that you have can get you into the ballot box. It's like what um, what states have done is that they have figured out the kinds of IDs that African Americans have and don't have. And you get this kind of disproportionate targeting of privileging the kinds that African Americans don't have. Let's take Alabama. What Alabama did in its voter ID law, it said you must have a government-issued photo ID. But public housing ID did not count as, a, as an acceptable form of government-issued photo ID. But public housing, right? Um, and the, uh, um, 71% of those in public housing in Alabama were African-American. And for many, it was the only ID that they had. So now the only government-issued photo ID that they have doesn't count. Then Governor Bentley shut down the Department of Motor Vehicles in the Black Belt counties ostensibly as a cost-saving measure. So it, you create an obstacle. You need a voter ID, and then you create an obstacle to that obstacle. 
the ones that you have don't count, and the ones that you can give or can get, we're moving further and further away to make them absolutely inaccessible. Because if you don't have a driver's license, which means you don't drive, how do you go 50 miles to the nearest Department of Motor Vehicles when you don't have public transportation? That's what we're dealing with here in America right now. Mm-hmm. Well, we reached the end of our, our time. Uh, you, uh, you can c- continue this conversation, uh, Dr. Anderson will, yes. with Dr. Maricela Martinez-Cola of USU about uh, voting in the United States throughout its history and in 2020. And that event is a part of the Voting Rights Symposium at Utah State University. Uh, the event featuring uh, Dr. Anderson is September 17th at 5 p.m., and you can register for this webinar at history.usu.edu slash voting rights symposium. Carol Anderson is author of White Rage and One Person No Vote, among other books, and she's Charles Howard Candler, professor of African American Studies at Emory University. By the way, you can uh, find uh, her at her website, which is professorcarolanderson.org. Uh, Dr. Anderson, it's, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is supported in part by our members and utahhumanities.org, improving communities through active engagement with the humanities. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. It's been a pretty eventful year in the news and for us here at UPR. And back in the spring, we had to do things a bit differently for our member drive. Well, it's getting to be that time again, and our socially distanced fall membership drive is coming up on September 12th. And you can become an early bird donor by heading to upr.org. Your support helps everything we do as a station, whether it's bringing you the NPR programming you love, hearing local news stories, or all the entertainment in between. Without your support, it wouldn't be possible. Again, you can pledge now online at upr.org. Thank you and stay safe.